This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of July 24th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, your co-host and a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. Who else would be with me but my two erudite co-hosts? In Massachusetts this week, it is Catherine Hamilton. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, what's new and interesting this week? Why are you in Massachusetts? Oh, I'm at this wonderful conference at the Endicott House that's owned by MIT, and I'll talk to you more about it on my What You May Not Know portion. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing about it. <laughs> in New York, it's Jigger Shah. He is a partner with Clean Fleet Investors. How are things in New York this week, Jigger? Doing well, doing well. The temperature's gone up. It's funny because it was so pleasant last week, and then I realized it's because they had another polar vortex from Canada last week, and that's why it was so nice last week. <laughs> that reminds me of a study I saw last week that uh, compared how Democrats and Republicans Google climate change, and they found that Republicans are more likely to Google climate-related topics during extreme weather events, either extreme heat or extreme cold or, uh, or, or, or storms, and Democrats are more likely to Google things about climate averages what are the climate terms that you typically Google, Jigger? Creating climate wealth. <laughs> <laughs> I just look at the Capital Weather Gang and watch their tweets to see what's going to happen in my neighborhood. I do the exact same thing, but sadly, I Google averages a lot, and I don't consider myself a Democrat. I'm, I consider myself independent, and it turns out that uh, I'm doing what the Democrats do. So there's that. Take it for what it's worth. Well, you know what's funny is that so one of my – Good friends is Dan Stillman, who is one of the co-founders of the Capital Weather Gang. So I remember when we were over at his house having dinner and he's like, oh, there's a weather event tonight. I'm on call. So he's on his laptop, like, you know, informing everybody. But uh, it's a really it's a really great operation started by two guys. Oh, yeah, they're great. And whenever there's a, an extreme weather event, I always go on the roof of my building and take pictures and tweet at them in hopes that they'll retweet me. My friends <laughs> always joke about that. <laughs> All right, well, this week, speaking of extreme weather, we're talking about a flood of financing that is boosting clean energy projects and a drought of rainfall cutting others down. First up, yet another Yieldco was launched this week to connect project developers with the public markets. Can renewable energy companies keep feeding this growing beast with quality projects? Secondly, the third-party financing structures that boosted solar are taking hold in efficiency, but when will they have the same impact? Finally, we'll look at a real-world example of the water energy nexus, California's ongoing drought. And at the end of the show, we'll dig up some interesting stories and tell you something you may not know. So the biggest investors in the world are pouring their money into renewable energy projects. You want to join them? Well, now you can. Up until recently, it was nearly impossible for the average investor to support projects. But yield codes are changing that. Last Friday, Sun Edison became the latest company to launch a yield co called Terraform, joining at least 14 others that have been formed in the last 18 months or so. 
Yieldco is a publicly traded company that uses underlying contracts, in Sun Edison's case, power purchase agreements for solar projects to deliver dividends to investors. The company will sell projects into the Yield Co. and use that revenue to build a bigger portfolio of projects. In Sun Edison's case, it started out with a 524 megawatt portfolio of solar projects. The stable cash flows from those projects are then passed on to investors. The structure is a way to separate project development from the other pieces of a company's business and attract investors in the public market who otherwise wouldn't be able to make those project-level investments. Upon launching, Sun Edison's Yield Co. was oversubscribed within a few hours and soared more than 30% in its first days of trading. So are these newly formed public entities a revolution in renewable energy finance? Or will competition among yield co's create new demands on developers to fill up portfolios with weaker or costlier projects? Let's talk about the opportunity and the risks. Jigger Shaw, you're pretty bullish on the emergence of yield co's. What do you think this trend, both Sun Edison and all the other yield co's out there, what does it mean for the armchair investor? Well, I think when you think about where this whole thing started, um, it started with a guy named Shimon Arbach, who tragically passed away in 2005, who wrote all of this literature about the fact that solar and wind were, were fundamentally lower risk resources than natural gas and coal and other things just because of using the capital asset pricing model, which is sort of beta, right? So you have a beta of one for the S&P 500 stocks that you buy and a beta that's less than that for bonds. And What's happened is over the years, we've sort of just said, well, we've got to use smart capital. We used Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, others. We need to do this stuff. Now that we're moving to a yield co, you're actually getting to the point where smart investors, institutional investors can actually start to price the underlying risk of what it is that you know we're offering. So when Sun Edison's yield co was first proposed, many people thought no one would buy it. And um, last year, when NRG's yield co went forward, they said, well, it's because institutional investors get coal and natural gas and the wind and solar stuff was sort of lipstick on a pig. But when you look at Sun Edison's um, yield co, it was 20x oversubscribed. It was 6x oversubscribed in the first three hours. The price range was increased twice in the week following going up to the IPO, which what that means was it was first priced at a 6% yield. Then it was dropped to a 4.5% yield, and during the day of trading, it went down to less than a 3% yield. And so it's, it's pretty extraordinary how institutional investors are pricing this, but what really is valuable is over time, they're going to start saying this product is going to get priced by institutions versus U.S. Treasury bonds, corporate bonds, et cetera, and we're going to start to get a real sense of where the true interest rates should be for renewable energy. So we've got a couple issues here. Let's talk about interest rates. I mean, low interest rates ha have been really good for um, for utilities building projects and for independent project developers. But as rates rise, that is going to take investors who uh, might be might go back into bonds, and it might make projects more expensive to develop. How much of an issue do you see that going forward? Well, for now, it's not an issue at all. I mean, Janet Yellen's made it pretty clear that she's going to keep um, the current situation you know, at hand where we're very loose with monetary policy. And so until the Fed says we're going to raise interest rates to combat inflation, and you know, just this last week, 
inflation came in at a paltry, I think, 0.1% for the month. So, um, so I don't think it's a problem for us through 2016. Now, post-2016, we'll see where that goes. But I, but I do think that you have to keep in mind that the costs of underlying power are going way up, too, because of you know, new transmission projects, new distribution projects, all sorts of new stuff that the utilities are building. They're raising rates by 4 to 5% a year. Yeah, let me ask you, Jigger, about Nextera. Since um, their Yield Co. Uh, launched uh, earlier this month, and they're the largest U.S. renewable energy generator, they're also bidding on purchasing Encore, the Texas transmission company. How is that all kind of coming together? Well, I think one of the things that I would say is that that the reason Sun Edison's Yield Co. was was so important was because Sun Edison, even though it's more than 10 years old now, was viewed as a startup company doing a Yield Co., whereas NRG had been around for a while and Nextera has clearly been around for a while. I mean, they're a publicly traded utility company that's been around for years that owns Florida Power and Light, um, and their stuff's been operational for a long time. But I do think that when you look at Nextera and what they're actively buying in the marketplace right now, they're forcing people to get into very conservative 20-year contracts for wind and solar projects because um, they think that that's what the Yield Co., market wants to see. On the Encore side, I think that's separate from their yield go. Question about project volume here, right? You you actually sent an email around and you said, what will the need to feed the beast do to project quality, right? Will it force a company like Sun Edison to move beyond solar and perhaps invest in natural gas projects? Um, and then you sort of have this issue with, um, you know, the parent company's relationship with the yield co so like is the parent company operating in the best interests of the shareholders is it going to sell projects at above market value because it has the right of first offer to the yield co is that going to impact pricing so you have all these variables that will impact the project pipeline and potentially impact pricing long term do you see those as having a major impact well yeah but to the benefit right i mean when you have a lot of competition the price of the capital will go down. So right now, let's say Sun Edison's raw cost of capital after all of its expenses, et cetera, given the where the stock's trading, might be five and a half percent. But they're still going to bid eight or nine percent in the in the market, and then keep the rest of that profit for themselves at the parent company, at Sun Edison, you know, parent. But you know, if there's six or seven yield codes bidding on the same project, now the developer might actually get a price that that looks more like a five and a half or six percent interest return, which is a good thing for the developer. Now that core developer will get more profit for all of their hard work in developing the projects. I think what'll happen is is that over time, if there's not enough deal flow, there will be a shift away from just gold plated, platinum plated projects to projects that are good projects, but you know, probably aren't getting a second look right now, like you know, will capitalize churches or food banks or school districts or lots of other types of projects that aren't viewed as, you know, gold-plated. These are never going to go bankrupt. These are the best credits ever. Now people might go down and say, well, you know, we want to put residential in here, not just FICO score of 700, but we're willing to go down to FICO scores of 650 as long as it's a portfolio. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that that's a good thing for the solar marketplace. Now it could go to extremes. And we could have a subprime problem on our hands, but I certainly don't think that's going to be a problem for the next six or seven years. All right. So we're kind of interviewing you here because you're the, the expert on this. 
what should investors really know about this stuff as they eye the many yield codes hitting the market? Well, the reason why uh, somebody might bid this down to a 2.7% yield or 2.8% yield, as in Sun Edison's case, is they're looking for growth, right? So they think if they own the stock now at $33 a share or something, then in two years' time, because of all the new projects that Sun Edison adds to the yield co, the dividend yield will actually go up. And if they decide to stop adding new projects, let's say at the end of two years, then that dividend yield for the same $33 that they paid for the stock price will now be 55 or 6%. Uh, dividend yield, right? So they're buying it now for the expectation of growth in the dividend yield over time. But I think the bigger thing is for the Nehruk crowd and the and government officials and others is that renewable energy is no longer in the position of begging people for money. That's the big thing that happened on Friday, is that people are begging us to take their money. That's what it means when an IPO is 20 times oversubscribed is people were begging Sun Edison to take their money and not the other person's money, right? And so that means that we have way more money chasing deals right now in the space than there are deals to be had, which means that policy should get the signal that, hey, you know, we're open for business. If you want to bring economic development to your state, make it easier to develop more renewable energy projects or force your utility companies to do it now because the solar industry is flush with cash and can do all the work in 2015, 2016. And Jigger, don't we want as many instruments as possible so that we can address various parts of the investment cycle and various technologies and applications? That's exactly right. I mean, the goal of this whole thing is to make this a democratic process. Today, if you're Solar City, you believe that you actually have a leg up on the guy who's got, you know, seven, 70 employees in Maryland who's a big regional player. But in the future, if there's a number of yield codes, all of them are going to be begging that group with 70 employees to say, hey, you know, why don't you use us as your financing partner? We're going to give you great terms and we're going to let you compete with Solar City on an equal basis and so that you can provide your customers with the same level of service the solar city is providing and that's awesome right because we're democ- we're making finance democratic and and really allowing everyone equal access to that financing not just folks who are experts in tax equity hey catherine i think your son is going to have a bright future in renewable energy finance <laughs> yeah i'm going to yeah i'm going to send him right to a yoko <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break here to recognize our sponsor, eGage Systems. Does any of this mean anything to you? Split core current transformers, bus bar and switchgear applications, IEEE C5713 Class 1.2? Yeah? Well, good. Then you're listening to the right podcast, and you certainly have a much deeper technical background than I do. Even if you aren't an engineer, though, our sponsor, eGage Systems, should mean something to you. As you've heard by now, eGage is a manufacturer of all-in-one energy meters designed for demand analysis, solar systems, lead buildings, sub-metered facilities, anything that would need a meter to gauge performance. The company's products allow you to view energy usage in all kinds of ways with revenue-grade accuracy on a simple web interface with no ongoing fees. So if you're in an industry that requires monitoring capabilities, which is pretty much every industry, check out eGage Systems. You can find out more at eGage.net. That's eGage Systems at eGage.net. 
All right, let's hop over to our second topic and look at some equally compelling developments in efficiency finance. If you're looking for some new acronyms to spice up your geeky energy vocabulary, look no further than the energy efficiency sector. PACE, OBR, MESA, ESA, and MEETS are all acronyms being thrown around a lot these days. These are all structures, like the Power Purchase Agreement for Solar, designed to finance efficiency projects through third parties. So PACE, which stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy, and OBR, which stands for On-Bill Repayment, are programs that help people pay back efficiency upgrades through their property taxes or utility bills. MESAs, ESAs, and MEETS, which are basically varying equivalents to a PPA, are different project-level structures that allow, say, a building owner to finance a project off-balance sheet and just pay for the savings. I don't think we need to walk through all the details of how each of these works, but it's helpful to know that they're out there and they roughly do the same thing. But as I wrote on Green Tech Media and have written in the past, efficiency still hasn't caught the momentum that solar caught after commercial and residential PPAs took off. And we'll discuss some of those reasons now. So, Jigger, I know we kind of barraged you with questions on the Yield Co. stuff, but I want you to take the first whack at this one, considering that you helped bring the commercial PPA for solar into being. Why, in your opinion, haven't we seen the same thing take off in efficiency yet? Well, there's a, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also some important differences. One of the challenges with energy efficiency is that there's no such thing as energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is not solar, where solar is a, a, a panel that produces electricity, goes into an inverter, etc. Energy efficiency might be insulation, might be continuous commissioning sensors, it might be new windows, it might be you know, lighting, all sorts of stuff. So when someone comes to me and says, I've got $100 million worth of energy efficiency projects, would you finance them? I have to read every single project because I don't know whether I'm comfortable with insulation, but I am comfortable with lighting. Maybe I'm not comfortable with Honeywell's equipment, but I am with Nest's equipment. And so the problem that I see with energy efficiency right now is that the independent engineering side of this is very slow and methodical. You've got to go through all the documents and figure out what people are doing to see whether the promises that are being made to the customers in terms of savings are actually going to happen. Because, you know, you can imagine as an investor, if they don't happen, the customer might say, I don't care what I signed, I'm not going to pay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And if you do, so so um, the Consortium for Building Energy Innovation, the EEB hub, did three audits at the Navy Yard headquarters and got three completely different answers with their audits. So part of the issue is there is a, an enormous amount of subjective you know, subjective and bias that goes into audits. So I spent some time on the phone with uh, First Fuel, and they do a lot of sort of analytics that allow you to kind of think through the project much quicker than having to do, a, you know, a, an upfront investment grade audit. But what it does is it puts data in front of people, <laughs> which means that, you know, you're looking at the data and the analytics before you send somebody out who may have a particular interest in some kind of energy conservation measure and not others. Yeah, and those software IT companies are helping solve that initial challenge that Jigger talked about, which was this distrust of the savings. And we have historically not had really good tools to truly measure energy efficiency. And in the commercial and residential sector, if you talk to program, program administrators and people who are tracking this stuff, they often show that the 
the models, the mathematical models that people use can be off by double digits up to 30%. And so that makes it very difficult to finance. Um, and also, I mean, project developers have never really had to talk about financing options in the commercial space. And so this is relatively new. And when you talk to some of the companies that are offering these new PPA-like structures, it can be difficult to either talk to the building owner or it can be tough to educate contractors about the types of financing options that are out there. It just They just haven't had to talk about it in the way that they are today. And of course, the financing process has been extremely complicated and paper intensive, as you talked about, Jigger. And a lot of people are sort of looking to the retail banking and online lending platforms for inspiration and in how to keep things simple. And then, of course, there's this just this big lack of technical standards and performance standards that have historically not been there. And, you know, I do not envy the task of people like the Investor Confidence Project. That's um, a, a guy, Matt Golden, who's doing really great work in the efficiency space, working with uh, the Environmental Defense Fund on creating project level standards. And man, that's a tough task. But they're getting there and they're starting to develop projects through these protocols. And so all these things have not historically been there. And I'm getting the sense that they really are coming together. And then in the next couple of years, we are going to see somewhat of a turnaround. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think pace is interesting. But one of the things with pace is it's basically bypassing all the complexity. They're just saying, look, if you're willing to put um, a, you know, sort of a, uh, put your building up as collateral, um, we're happy to assess a property tax on your building as long as it's not too big. So that's one of the challenges is in a lot of the country, let's say your building's only worth $100,000. Well, then you can only do ten dollars or $20,000 maximum of energy efficiency. But it's a way to bypass all the complexity and say, look, I don't care how much it saves you. As long as you agree to the city assessing you on these property taxes, we'll finance it. Um, the on-bill payment mechanism is similar, but when I talk to my friends doing on-bill payment mechanism work, they find that the paperwork with the utility is often ridiculously onerous, um, and they lose some customers along the way just because of how long it takes to process the paperwork. So that part, I think, does have to get better. But I'm, I'm hugely bullish on energy efficiency. I do think that they're finally getting their act together, and there's some real you know, hope here on the horizon. Yeah, I totally agree. I was talking to uh, someone from Solar City today who said, you know, just trying to securitize energy efficiency is so different because with with something like solar, you know, you have an asset that's really easy to see. You can just remove it. Um, but with energy efficiency, you can't do that with, you know, with energy efficiency measures. You can't do that with insulation. So so doing sort of the pace model is going to make it a lot simpler. They just think we have to think about it differently than we do other assets. But one of the things that people are sort of, you know, conveniently uh, looking past is a lot of the PACE loans people are making are actually for solar. We, we've only closed like $300 million in PACE projects in this country, too. And the volume itself is pretty low and much of it is going to solar. So that is a, that's an issue. Yeah. So I, I think these guys are going to do OK. But one of the things that I think has constantly plagued energy efficiency and will continue to plague them, I think, is that. They are so obsessed with the interest rate. It is beyond me. When you look at the projects that I look at on a regular basis through Noesis's platform or other people's platforms, um, it's something on the order of like half the projects I see could easily handle a 15% interest rate. But because they're obsessed with getting 
access to these lower costs of capital, they actually add 10 or 12 steps to their process just to try to you know make their life more difficult. Jigger, walk me through the implications of that. Like, Help me visualize what that means for the extra steps that a project developer might take. I'm having trouble visualizing exactly what you mean. So let's say someone does an upgrade to their building and it's $50,000, right? Because that's pretty typical for a small commercial building. Um, you know, I could provide them financing at 15%. As long as I just look at the things that they're doing, oh, LED lights, are you guys using some cheap Chinese knockoff or using Cree? Okay, great. You're using somebody of high quality, et cetera, et cetera. Done. Here's $50,000. Let's do the rate of return. The payback is three years. As long as you finance it over sort of seven or eight years, the customer saves 25%. 75% gets paid to me and the developer, and we split the proceeds such that I'm making a rate of return in the and the developer's making a rate of return. Now, if you decide to do that through PACE, you actually have to work through um, Renovate or some of these extraordinary groups that have come along, come along, and you have to go to that building owner and say, hey, we actually want to put a lien against your, your building by putting this property tax assessment on there. And they say, well, do you have a mortgage? Oh, yes, we do. So now you have to contact the person who has the first mortgage and say, hey, we're going to put this property tax lien on the building. Do you mind giving us an approval for that? You can imagine a lot of folks don't have automatic approvals, and they certainly don't have an entire team staffed to actually take these kinds of requests. And so now it gets mired in paperwork for eight weeks while people would figure out who they have to ask for permission. And if you're a small business, they don't care about you. Now, if you're a REIT, sure, you've got a $500 million loan with them. They'll actually give you good customer service. And so all of these other little steps are the challenge. And then let's say they approve it, but the local PACE guys say, actually, we need Lockheed Martin, who's our independent engineer, to actually be the independent engineer that validates um, the savings numbers or else our institutional investor won't buy the, buy the loan. So now you have to wait for Lockheed Martin to do the institutional um, audit of, of the savings. And all of these things could have been bypassed if they just took a loan at 15%. Yeah, investment-grade audits are incredibly expensive. Well, I admire the folks that are attempting to craft these programs on the state or utility level. They've got their work cut out for them. Let's go to uh, California again for our third story. Last week it was about dwindling nuclear, and this week it's about dwindling water resources. California is in the middle of its worst drought on record. Nearly three-quarters of the state is facing extreme or exceptional drought conditions. And that doesn't just influence how people use water in their homes and businesses. It impacts how electricity is delivered. Many of the state's hydroelectric dams are operating well below capacity as water levels at reservoirs continue to fall. That is forcing utilities to burn more natural gas, which is costing them more money and causing a rise in emissions. In 2012, emissions in California grew by 1.7%, partly because of the closing of the San Onofre nuclear plant and partly because of dwindling hydropower. This is the Water Energy Nexus in Action, and it coincides with a new report from the Department of Energy outlining priorities to address the problem nationwide, which is only expected to get worse as heat-driven droughts persist. Catherine, looking at California, what alarms you most about the situation there? Well, when you look at the DOE report and it says that, you know, 50% of the water withdrawn in the country is used to to keep power plants cool and California as you described is in this middle of this um terrible situation with needing um you know they they need more electric production um and 
and then you know they're needing to try to figure out what they're going to do with that. And in addition, they're they're trying fracking, and fracking takes an enormous amount of of water. Um, so they're going to need to figure out. We talked last week a little bit about you know what are all the different options that they have for generation. But I also think we need to really look at the other side, the use side. So thirteen percent of our electricity is used for moving water um, and wastewater, and um, you know we need to think about how we're using it and. I used to work in water quite a bit on, you know, trying to reuse wastewater, the unsexy stuff, replacing steam traps, doing things that really make a lot of sense. But also thinking about, you know, this nexus is in so many different places. It's on the generation side. It's on the use side. It's on the, you know, the the drilling side. You know, every single every single place it's used has an opportunity. Yeah. And then it expands into agriculture. So, as water resources dwindle, you need pumps to get the water from deeper and deeper aquifers. That uses more energy as heat persists. Usually these droughts are, are heat-driven. So in that case, you see a lot of a lot more air conditioners running. Uh, then you have this greater need to burn more natural gas, and the cycle repeats itself. It's quite fascinating how this nexus uh, has evolved. Yeah. And remember, as as electric lines heat up, they, be, they become less efficient. So then you need even more generation to get electricity where it needs to go. Yeah. Let's give a, a picture here for folks of what's happening in California. So in 2011, hydro was around 18% of electricity generation. And in 2012, it was 11.5% roughly. Um, and that number is still falling because reservoirs le- reservoir levels are still falling. Uh, we have not seen 2013 figures yet. Nuclear was the same at the same time. So it went from 18% of generation in 2011 to 9.3%. And so as a result, we have seen a significant ramp up in natural gas. And interestingly, we do see some new regulations on uh, natural gas plant cooling. So many plants will shut down, as we discussed last week. So there's a huge water question that I don't think has really been baked into the decision-making around energy procurement in California. You know, this this actually attaches nicely to our question about what should fill in for the San Onofre nuclear power plant. And to the best of my knowledge, these water concerns really haven't been taken into consideration. Well, one thing they have done is that SB4 in California um, was enacted and they're finalizing the regulations right now on fracking, which are going to, they're sweeping, they're the most sweeping regulations in the country for more sustainable water technologies. And that's for exploration, of course, that's not for power production. But California is paying attention. And I think on a national level, this is a bipartisan issue. This is not something, um, interestingly, uh, Senator Murkowski, um, a Republican from Alaska, um, with Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, um, introduced a bill, um, S-1971, which is the Nexus of Energy and Water Sustainability Act. I mean, they're thinking about this in a very bipartisan way. And I actually think this is some energy po- and water policy that we can do on a national level um, that will then reverberate. And maybe California is in the lead on coming up with some of those solutions. But I certainly think it's something we can do on a national scale, too. Boy, I just don't see the bipartisan action, right? I mean, on a state level and on a local level, when you see droughts like this, it's bipartisan in that both parties are fighting equally for water resources. But I'm not as uh, optimistic as you are that we can find some of these solutions. But, but the good thing about the water energy nexus is that the crisis becomes so acute that it actually causes emergency 
um, measures. And those emergency measures are things that people have to deal with, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I mean, just to like put this in perspective, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California estimates that the amount of electricity used to deliver water to residential customers in Southern California is equal to one-third of the total average household electricity use in Southern California. I mean, it, it's just it, – these are huge numbers. In, in New Mexico, for instance, something on the order of around 50 percent of all of um, – let's see. What, what, was the, what was the number? It was like 50 percent of you know, the electricity in one part of the state is used just to transport water. And so at some point, you start to look at what uses water. And you know, I think the 50 percent water withdrawals is, is exactly right. My, my old professor from University of Illinois sent me an email correcting me saying it is true that 50 percent of the water withdrawals are, are for electricity cooling, but a lot of that water is put back into the system. Um, after being used for cooling at a higher temperature back into the ecosystem, which we can argue about, you know, probably messes with the ecosystem in other ways. So it's not lost. Um, it gets returned back to the ecosystem. But, you know, look, I think this is a big deal because like hurricanes and other things, this causes one of those acute crises that we can then actually point to and pass policy around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that, and the water recycling is still an issue. So in the southeast, they've had to shut plants down historically because river levels have fallen so low and the river has gotten so hot that it's dangerous for the ecosystem to recycle that warm water back into the river. So there are those considerations. Hey, Jigger, what do you think about concentrating solar power in this context? The numbers that I've seen are that solar thermal plants that use water for evaporative cooling use roughly double the amount of water that uh, combined cycle natural gas plants do. And, uh, you know, if you use dry cooling techniques, it can be two and a half times more expensive than uh, evaporating water. Do those figures sound right to you? And if so, what, you know, what do you think they mean for the future of CSP, given that expense? Yeah, look, I mean, Julie Blunden and I were on the Solar Energy uh, Industry Association board together back in 2007, and I bet her um, back then that CSP would never make it, largely because of the water issue, right? I mean, when you think about where CSP is being deployed, it's precisely in areas that have a lack of water to begin with. So now you have to truck in water and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, the water rights in the western part of the United States is an entire body of law. Um, and you're right. I mean, if you want to go to dry cooling, it's not two and a half times more for the entire plant, but it's definitely two and a half times more than evaporative cooling, which adds like an extra two cents a kilowatt hour to the price of the PPA, which is not insignificant when, you know, today solar PV is bidding five and a half cents for, um, you know, their PPAs. So look, I think CSP is dead and I've said that for a long time. And the main reason I think it's dead is because solar PV with battery storage is far better um, to meet that need than CSP. Hmm. So this DOE report, Catherine, anything meaningful in there? It comes out as the administration is being more proactive in how it communicates climate science and extreme weather. And so this is a sort of a broader piece of that strategy. I thought it was a good report. It outlined some very important uh, factors to consider, but is this just a report that's going to sit on a shelf somewhere? Anything in here make you think that the DOE is really going to step up and do anything meaningful? 
Well, remember, they're doing a lot of these reports that are going to be foundational to whatever energy policy they put out. So I feel like the quadrennial energy review that's looking at you know generation, transportation and storage of energy and other things that that this is all going to kind of feed into that. So um, and since it's getting some bipartisan support on the Hill and honestly, when you look at places like Georgia, you're going to get support on both sides of the aisle for doing you know, water efficiency measures. I think, um, you know, DOE is poised to not only make some policy recommendations that can be used nationally or on a state level basis, but is also can be can be the first mover. They can be doing um, in their own facilities uh, water efficiency measures using lower water technologies to, you know, move and produce energy. Hey, one other thing, though, that I think people um, sort of skip over is the largest user of water in the United States in the energy sector is hydro. Because what happens with hydro is you dam up these rivers and you put these huge lakes in the back and you accelerate evaporation off these lakes. And so the net amount of water utilized um, is highest for hydro. It's double what it is for coal and, and other and nuclear. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that we don't have that many good resource areas left, that's another reason why I think large scale dammed hydro is doesn't really have a future in this country. Run of River Hydro, I think, is a different story, but uh, that's a whole completely different topic. So I'd love to talk about that sometime. All right, let's wrap up the show, dig up some good stories, tell our listeners something they don't know, something they may not know. Catherine, what do you have this week? Yeah, so just uh, kind of piggybacking on the Department of Energy, um, I was just asked to be a clean energy education and and empowerment C3E ambassador. There are about 30 ambassadors that they've named. uh, They're women, primarily. Um, And I'm right now at the MIT Endicott House with, you know, doing this uh, great meeting with all these incredible women. I'm just super honored to be in their midst. We have folks from MIT, uh, Christine Irvin, who used to be the um, Assistant Secretary of Energy. We have folks from the Clean Energy Trust, GE, Walmart. Um, we have regulators here. We have Bobby Garrett, who's the Deputy Lab Director for NREL. Um, we even have a dude from uh, Solar City, Seth Weissman, uh, who's their general counsel. We just have an incredible number of women here who are doing amazing things, and I feel honored to be in their presence. Congratulations. That's really great. Thank you. I'm so jealous. You too. You two are honored with so many different awards each week. I feel like I need to start making something up for my own. <laughs> You're their best podcaster host awards, Kevin. <laughs> Jigger, what do you have this week? Well, you know, I think that there's been a lot of conversations about wind energy and the PTC and lots of other things. But, you know, I was reading the Union of Concerned Scientists website and They basically pointed to Department of Energy's 2012 Wind Technologies Market Report showing that PPA prices have fallen from in the U.S. from $70 a megawatt hour on average in 2009 to below $40 a megawatt hour in 2012 and then even below that in 2013, which is a whopping 43% decline over a three-year period. So I think there's a lot of folks who talk about how solar is coming down in cost, but wind really isn't. But I think you know, wind really is keeping up with the Joneses on their cost reduction. And, um, and I think it's, and I think it's kind of cool. I think it speaks to the real conversation we need to have about the phase out of the PTC and what comes beyond it. And the wind industry has been completely unwilling to have that conversation. I know I probably sound like a broken record here because we've had this discussion so many times, but that speaks to 
in my opinion, this line between helping an industry out over the time frame it needs and a tax credit turning into corporate welfare. And I think that there's a line there. And when you look at how dramatically wind costs have dropped, we need to have that very serious conversation. And eventually we're going to have to have that conversation for solar as well. And that's not too far off. Well, well and how about, how about all the fossil guys too? Can we get rid of theirs also? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, just had to throw that in. Well, you know, as Chris Cook, my, my, co- my co-founder at Sun Edison used to say, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. That's right. And, you know, as we get to be closer to the hog status, we're going to get slaughtered. Did my use of the word corporate welfare rub you the wrong way, Catherine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still with it with the wind, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we've got a bunch of young professionals listening to this show and a lot here in D.C. And I wanted to alert them to a program in the city that I highly recommend called the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. And full disclosure, I'm on an advisory committee helping develop their new curriculum and actually... Uh, Patrick Von Bargen, Catherine's co-founder at 38 North Solutions, is on that committee as well. Yeah, and I taught one of their classes. Yeah, and we've got a whole range of big-time energy pros in D.C. who come through and give lectures. It's really a great program. And uh, it's a 14-week program. It's designed to give young professionals deep experience in the clean energy industry, featuring all these lectures, networking opportunities, some crash courses on all the different forces driving the market. Um, I've spoken at a couple of the seminars on communication-related stuff. And I don't know about you, Catherine, but when I listened to questions from people, I was so blown away at the quality of the fellows who were involved in the program. I mean, these are some smart, smart young pros. Yeah, it's a great program. I'm really glad you and Patrick are working on pulling that together. I think it's terrific. Yeah, the, uh, the organization was founded by... A colleague of mine, Adam James, who I worked with at the Center for American Progress, and he's uh, now an analyst at GTM Research. He's kind of doing the fundraising now, and it's run by a group of young professional women here in the city who are helping it grow further. They're doing a really great job, and I think thinking even more broadly about what the program can be. So I'm mentioning all this because the Clean Energy Leadership Institute is taking applications for the fall program, and I recommend that any young professionals in the city apply. And the age range is varied. It's generally from like age 21 to 30. It's a it's a great program. So we're in the process of putting together this new curriculum to make it better. And if you're looking to expand your horizons, I think it should be on your radar. So we'll link to it on the podcast page, and it's at cleanenergyleaders.org. That's all for this week's show. For links to the stories and reports we chatted about on the podcast, check out greentechmedia.com slash podcast. While you're there, you can listen to back episodes, subscribe to the show, send links to your friends and colleagues. Our subscriber base continues to grow every week. We'd like to see it continue to grow, so please spread the word. To contact us with comments, questions, or story ideas, send me an email, lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. I'll pass those around to the rest of the gang. Thank you so much to eGage Systems for sponsoring this podcast. We are very appreciative of their underwriting support. And thanks to all of you for listening. Of course, the final thanks go to my co-hosts who are here with me every week and devote their time to this podcast. Catherine, enjoy your time in Massachusetts. Congratulations, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks. Jigger, have a great week. I'm assuming you're not in New York City for that long. I'm actually off to Aspen next week, and so um, it'll be fun. We'll uh, we'll record next week from Aspen. 
Sounds good. Looking forward to it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.